Walgreens pharmacy staff members walk off the job at some stores. And I'll talk with Cranes reporter John Pletz about the state of O'Hare's pandemic recovery. There's always that concern in the airline industry of pent-up demand, revenge travel. Once you really did the, you know, the, the huge trip that you hadn't done in a while, do you, do you keep flying as much? Does, does that trail off? I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Wednesday, October 11th. You shouldn't have to explain to your bank why your business matters. Wintrust Commercial Banking doesn't rely on clients to educate them. They have dedicated teams of Chicagoland-based experts specializing in a range of industries, allowing them to offer customized solutions. Built in the area for the area, Wintrust offers the tools and support your business needs to thrive in Chicago. Be your bank's top priority at Wintrust Commercial Banking. Meet your future banker at Wintrust.com banker. Wintrust products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks, FDIC, EHL. I'm joined by Cranes reporter John Pletz here to talk about O'Hare. So, you know, obviously, like everything connected to air travel, it suffered greatly during the pandemic. But you've recently reported on that recovery and the role that international travel is playing in it. So talk to me about that. Where Where is that breaking out? Uh, international traffic is actually recovering faster than domestic. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I was not expecting that. In the past year, I sort of look at the July numbers you know, it's, uh, international traffic is is 91% of what it was pre-pandemic, and domestic is still about 85. And a year ago, I mean, you know, international was only, you know, 75% back. That's a big leap. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, the COVID restrictions on flying to various countries around the world. You know, those, those sort of... Um, you know, peeled off a while ago, but it also takes the airlines because of, you know, how long a lead time is required for international travel for the, you know, so the restrictions drop off and then it's months later before you can actually get those flights, you know, scheduled up and running. So, you know, uh, travel, international travel, particularly for people who have uh, friends and relatives overseas they hadn't seen in three years, that hit all at once and it really took off. But what do you attribute the slower recovery of domestic travel to? Because here, here's kind of what I'm, I'm aiming at. When we talk about like recovery of air travel or from an airline, there's, of course, like filling a backlog of lost revenue. But there's also, I think, kind of this unspoken conversation attached to that, right, about kind of acknowledging a behavior change, acknowledging that, that it's a special circumstance. So, so how would you say that domestic travel maybe has shifted the behavior around it? There's some shifting going on in terms of what, you know, sort of what we all know uh, with Zoom, for instance, so corporate travel on a, on a lot of levels. So people are not fully back to the office. This, is, this has been something that, that uh, airlines and, uh, you know, people who fly for a living have been talking about since the pandemic is how much travel it used to happen for business. Are those meetings being done on Zoom? So there's, there's some issue with that. We know that corporate travel has just come back much, much more slowly than anybody thought. But returning to the office has also come back much more slowly than uh, some people wanted or hoped. So that's a piece of it. There's some other factors that affect domestic travel and they affect domestic flying at O'Hare. 
in peculiar ways. Let's be clear that international is, you know, less than 20% of the travel at O'Hare. So, you know, it's not like it's JFK or LAX um, in that regard. But on the other side, two forces really affecting domestic travel and how, how fast that comes back. One are RJs, the little regional jets. And there's two things going on there. RJs are, uh, are not fuel efficient. Uh, and we're just in a higher fuel price world than we used to be. They also are old and they generally don't really offer you that sort of first class extended economy uh, option that airlines have found is a really good and lucrative thing. But more importantly, they're at the bottom of the food chain when it comes to pilots. There's a pilot shortage. So if everybody's scrambling to get pilots, the big guys raid from the regional carriers. And if there aren't enough pilots, the regional carriers have the hardest time attracting pilots. And so, you know, some, some airlines have said that there is less service, particularly to small markets, uh, because they're having a hard time, you know, fully staffing the RJs. Uh, you know, I think American has uh, at one point detailed the number of planes, regional planes that they weren't flying because of this. Exacerbating that problem, the tailwind behind it is that the airlines such as United and American are all doing what's called upgaging. There was this period 30 years ago. It's one of the reasons that they poured new runways at O'Hare was everybody was using an RJ to fly from one place to the other. They were, they were altering the hub and spoke. Well, we've swung back completely the other way. And so United's a great example of this is they're in the process of upgaging their planes using larger aircraft. So more people, fewer flights, same number of passengers, but when you get, when you get down to it, that also, uh, that also affects things because O'Hare, given its location and that, you know, we're sort of at the epicenter of a lot of small places, gets disproportionately impacted also by, by the RJ uh, challenge. So that's also weighing on the domestic piece a little bit. Sure. That's a factor out there that, you know, eventually that probably gets solved. We just don't know to what degree. It, it looks a lot like corporate travel, right? Yeah. You know, it's going to come back to some degree. We just don't know how much and we don't know when. And boy, it's taken a lot longer than anybody thought. And you mentioned United and, and kind of shifting planes around a little bit. And they recently made a big purchase, but that's going to kind of play out over several years. Tell me about that. Well, that also figures into this equation. Um, and that's the long-term trend. But United uh, added another, you know, 50, uh, well, it's 110 aircrafts, you know, roughly split between Airbus and, uh, and Boeing. The key there is, you know, in addition to this huge order they made a few years ago, because, you know, it, planes get to about 30 years old and you, you need to replace your fleet. Um, you know, you know, United was uh, was kind of late in doing that or later than some of its competitors. So they're, they're going through that process. But they they made another big order uh, for aircraft that they're expecting to get sort of at the end of the decade on top of what they're already they're already getting. Significantly, you know, 50 of those planes are 787s, which are primarily used for international travel. And United's, uh, you know, chief commercial officer said when he was describing sort of what was going on, why they were doing it, you know, United has a route network that sort of always, you know, has them looking toward international because, because of the routes they have. But he said, you know, the domestic aviation market is, is kind of mature. 
And if you're looking at where the growth is, where you're going to have just more travel, more, more people, raw growth, it's international. And that also sort of plays into this a little bit, I think. Yeah. And so you mentioned that international travel makes up about 20% of, of O'Hare. Do you expect that number to grow or to shift? It, you know, if the guy from uh, from United is, is right, uh, you would think that, yeah, international uh, eventually grows. It's, a, it, it's about perspective in terms of, you know, O'Hare is one of the few really large hubs in the United States, always has been. And because of that, it's it's got a good bit of international travel, uh, international traffic. You know, we're a huge cargo hub uh, from Asia, uh, the largest, uh, I think, cargo hub uh, involving China. And, you know, a lot of cargo flies in the belly of passenger aircraft. So, you know, O'Hare is always going to be a player when it comes to international. But you're not going to be um, as international heavy as a place like LAX or JFK. Right. Right there on the ocean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So the the good news is, uh, you know, O'Hare is an international uh, airport. It's not, you know, the most exposed international of everybody. So if international, it really is where, you know, the puck is going, uh, we're going to benefit, may not benefit as much as some others, um, but we're going to benefit. Yeah. And you mentioned that part of the uh, speed of international travels recovery has been about pent up demand of people that haven't seen friends or relatives in, in a number of years because of the pandemic. Does that suggest that there's a slowdown on the other side of that? Well, certainly uh, one of the analysts I talked to is, is kind of watching for that. Uh, but, you know, we've been watching for the impact of inflation and lots of other things to flow through to aviation. And, you know, uh, it, you know, like the fears of a general recession, it just hasn't materialized yet. But I think it's worth looking for. Um, there's always that concern in the airline industry of pent up demand, revenge travel. You know, once you once you really did the, you know, the, the huge trip that you hadn't done in a while, do you do you keep flying as much? Does does that trail off? And, uh, you know, visiting uh, friends and relatives, you know, you, you have people who haven't seen, uh, you know, friends and family in three years. And that drives a lot of traffic right now. And so everybody is kind of watching that. I think what they're hoping is that, you know, maybe that tails off a little bit partially and hopefully, uh, you know, you, you get the pickup in corporate travel that has been, you know, slower than you expected to emerge that, you know, uh, that kind of picks up the slack, you know, it's sort of like, uh, hoping for the, uh, the elusive, uh, soft landing or, you know, recovery from, uh, you know, from inflation and, and everything else we've been, we've been living through is can you get, you know, engineer the soft landing? We'll see. And, and you mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation uh, the pilot shortage, which was kind of an, just an interesting moment earlier in the pandemic. It accelerated some retirements. It it shifted a lot of personnel around, things like that. United at one point started investing in training programs for both pilots and mechanics. What is the most recent part of that? Any movement there? It, it ebbs and flows. Uh, you know, United and the other big carriers are able to get what they need because they're at the top of the food chain. Sure. But that is a long term trend that started before COVID and is going to continue to play out well after, um, you know, COVID recedes. So that's going to be with us for a while. And I don't think that gets fixed immediately. I do think some of the the immediate, really acute problems of restarting airlines, um, anybody who actually furloughed pilots 
really suffered from this because the amount of training it takes to get somebody uh, current again is an issue. Sure. Uh, when you have retirements, it makes that problem worse because now you're getting existing pilots, experienced pilots, but you're moving them to a new aircraft and that takes time and training. Uh, those two forces have made an already tricky situation tougher. Some of that pain is starting to ease a little bit. I mean, a, a pilot once described to me the number of training events that a single retirement triggers. And it, it, it was it was shocking. You know, it, it is exponential, not linear. So some of the uh, COVID related impact of that, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, a cold restart is going to go away. But, you know, that broader issue of just basically having this, you know, sort of once in a generation retirement of boomers is going to be with us for a while, not going away. Uh, and, you know, for, for guys like United, they feel like that's actually sort of an advantage for them. Uh, it takes a little bit of the competitive strain off of them that they've, you know, previously felt uh, from uh, from discount and and new carriers, you know, because if you're all struggling to get either pilots or planes, you know, it limits how much you can grow. Sure, sure. And then there was sort of a recent push to uh, to try to kind of double down a bit on recruiting uh, people out of the military. That seems like a, a bit of an advantage there of like, here's someone who's already been flying. They're not necessarily starting from scratch in, in their training. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the military pilots have always been, um, you know, the most highly prized for exactly that. They've got great training, great experience, you know, plug and play. There aren't as many of them as there used to be. So in, a, in an environment where you need more pilots uh, than you've ever needed before in terms of your refilling jobs, and there are fewer of them that really makes them highly, highly prized. And like I said, they, um, you know, they've always been coveted by airlines and airlines have always, you know, had a good pipeline of talking to folks who you knew were, were going to be leaving the service and United is, is just, um, you know, sort of polishing that up and doing some things to make an existing program more attractive or hopefully, you know, yield them more pilots. And, and it reflects the competition that all of those carriers have. You know, uh, this is, this is a, uh, a seller's market for pilots for the first time in a long time. A lot of interesting issues kind of swirling around the aviation industry that all, all kind of come together in this way. So what will you be watching most in the, just the next couple of months out of all of these issues you've outlined? Well, I'm, I am really going to be watching, you know, does, uh, does leisure travel, particularly international travel, hold up through the end of the year and into next year? I'm also going to be watching, you know, when when will we get, you know, this long hope for pickup in corporate travel? Do you get a steady, you know, return? I mean, it's interesting. It's not showing up in the numbers, but uh, anecdotally, some of the road warriors that, that certainly I know and, and have talked to said, you know, they're pretty much back on the road. Uh, several of them told me they're back on the road as much as they were pre-pandemic. So I'm, I'm hearing that a little more. I'm just not seeing it in, in the numbers yet. So those are the things that, that I'll be watching. And then, you know, you've got a whole host of other issues right now that are sort of uh, weighing on both the economy generally and then fuel in particular, and really going to be watching that uh, because, you know, it's, it's, just, it's such a driver for the aviation business. 
Sure. Lots of things. Well, I always appreciate you stopping by to break them down. Thanks so much. Glad to do it. Thanks, Amy. Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management gets $25 million in memory of Sam Zell. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Thanks for listening to Crane's Daily Gist. Remember, we provide a daily news brief that drops right in your inbox. It's our newsletter called The Crane's Morning 10. They're the 10 stories that will fuel a smarter workday. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning 10. This is The Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Pharmacy staff at some Walgreens stores across the U.S. walked off the job on Monday in response to what they describe as harsh working conditions. Pharmacies at select Walgreens stores in Arizona, Washington, Massachusetts, and Oregon have closed, and other pharmacies that remain open are severely understaffed, according to a report from CNN. Crane's healthcare reporter Catherine Davis noted in reporting that there have so far been no reported walkouts in Chicago or elsewhere in the state. In a statement to Cranes, a spokesperson for Deerfield-based Walgreens confirmed that some pharmacies were experiencing disruptions but declined to confirm or identify which specific stores were being impacted. Davis also noted in reporting that Walgreens Boots Alliance filled 287.6 million prescriptions, including immunizations, on a monthly basis in fiscal year 2020, according to its website. The company is also the Chicago area's 10th largest local employer, with more than 17,000 workers in the region, according to Crane's data. Davis also noted that the threat of walkouts surfaced late last week. The action, set to last over the course of a couple of days, is in response to what staff, including pharmacists, technicians, and support staff, say are burdensome prescription and vaccination expectations, especially since the new COVID-19 vaccine was released this fall. Davis also noted in reporting that Walgreens has also struggled to employ pharmacists over the last several years, an issue that was worsened by the pandemic, which put unprecedented stress on the healthcare system broadly. Walgreens has offered signing bonuses and boosted pay for pharmacists and pharmacy technicians to try to address that staffing issue. Davis also noted in reporting that the nation's other large pharmacy chain, CVS Health, has dealt with similar labor issues and saw its own pharmacy workers walk off the job at multiple locations in the Kansas City area at the end of September. Capital News Illinois reported that unions representing nurses in the state are pushing for legislation that would impose mandatory staff-to-patient ratios in hospitals, nursing homes, and other care facilities. But lobby groups representing hospitals and nursing homes say they're opposed to the legislation, arguing that a nationwide nursing shortage makes it impossible to comply with such a mandate. Capital News Illinois reported that the proposed Safe Patient Limits Act by Senator Selena Villanueva and Representative Teresa Ma, both Chicago Democrats, was introduced in February and was the subject of a joint hearing last week in Chicago by two House committees. It's an issue that's been discussed in the General Assembly since 2019, but has thus far failed to gain the necessary traction for passage. The latest hearing came just three weeks before lawmakers returned to the Capitol for their fall veto session which starts October 24th. 
Capitol News Illinois reported that the bill calls for setting a maximum number of patients that could be assigned to a registered nurse in specific situations. For example, in units with critical care or intensive care patients, the maximum number of patients per nurse would be just one. In units with pediatric patients, the bill would allow three patients per nurse, and in units with psychiatric patients, the bill would allow four patients per nurse. It also provides some legal protection for nurses, stating that they are to provide their services exclusively in the interest of patients, quote, unencumbered by the commercial or revenue-generating priorities of a facility that employs registered professional nurses. Some of those who testified in a committee hearing last week did so in favor of the bill and accused hospitals and nursing homes of being more concerned about labor costs and profit margins than the best interests of patients. Andy Allison, deputy director of the Illinois Department of Healthcare and Family Services, the agency that administers the state's Medicaid program, suggested that the key to solving the staffing issues in hospitals and nursing homes is to raise wages to make the jobs more attractive. He noted that last year lawmakers passed a significant overhaul of the way the state reimburses nursing homes through Medicaid, adding roughly $700 million in the form of incentives to increase wages and hire more staff. He said that before those reforms were adopted, Illinois was home to 46 of the 100 worst staffed nursing homes in the country. As of March 31st, he said that number had dropped to 14. Capital News Illinois also reported that Denise Steger, an organizer for Teamsters Local 743, which represents healthcare workers in many Chicago area facilities, said that money has not solved the problem, though, and that in some nursing homes, one nurse could still have as many as 20 patients to attend to during their shift. Find more reporting on the topic at chicagobusiness.com. Fertilizer makers jumped after war broke out in Israel and raised concerns over how the conflict could impact global supplies of nutrients used to grow crucial food crops. Bloomberg reported that Israel's port of Ashdod, just north of Gaza and a key hub for the country's potash fertilizer exports, is in emergency mode amid the deadly conflict. A Scotiabank analyst said in a note Monday that that's putting as much as 3% of the global supply of it at possible risk. Further, Bloomberg noted in reporting, also citing the Scotiabank analyst, that if Iran, a critical nitrogen exporter in the region, is drawn into the conflict, prices of the nutrient needed for grain production could spike due to limited supply and potential premiums in benchmark Dutch TTF natural gas, a commodity used to make nitrogen-based fertilizers. Bloomberg also reported that Nutrient Limited, the world's biggest potash maker, rose as much as 4.2 percent, the most since July. Deerfield-based CF Industries Holdings, the leading nitrogen producer, gained as much as 6.2 percent, the most in more than a month. Mosaic Company climbed as much as 6.7 percent, making that the stock's biggest intraday gain in almost a year. Bloomberg also noted in reporting that global fertilizer prices had significantly cooled this year after surging in 2022 due to supply disruptions from the war in Ukraine. And Bloomberg further noted that potential involvement from Iran in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict could endanger movement of vessels through the Strait of Hormuz, a vital conduit that Tehran has previously threatened to shut down. The Scotiabank analyst who spoke with Bloomberg also noted that a third of traded liquefied natural gas passes through that waterway. A Bloomberg intelligence analyst also reportedly said that firmer nitrogen prices were already expected later this year due to a nearly 10 percent surge in European natural gas prices following a pipeline leak in the Baltic. 
The Zell Family Foundation, a charitable organization started by the late billionaire real estate investor Sam Zell and his wife Helen, has provided another $25 million to help MBA students at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management take the leap into entrepreneurship by acquiring or starting a business. John Pletz reported that Zell initially funded the Zell Fellows Program at Kellogg a decade ago. Nearly 200 second-year MBA students have participated in the program, launching 127 ventures, according to the school. Companies started by Zell Fellows raised more than $700 million in capital for ventures in industries ranging from medical devices to global logistics and sustainable agriculture. 66 of the companies are still active and seven have been acquired, merged, or gone public. The school said Zell's gift was in the works before he died in May at age 81. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's reporter, John Pletz. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.